Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have James Shapiro. Welcome, Jim. Good to be with you both. James Shapiro is the Larry Miller Professor of English at Columbia University, where he's taught since 1985. He's written many books, including Shakespeare and the Jews, 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, Contested Will, the anthology Shakespeare in America, and The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606, which is his most recent. He's also co-authored and presented two BBC documentaries, Shakespeare, the King's Man, and The Mysterious Mr. Webster. He serves on the board of directors of the Royal Shakespeare Company, the board of governors of the Folger Shakespeare Library, is Shakespeare scholar in residence at New York's Public Theater, and has been inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So we are so fortunate to have you on this program. Thanks for joining us, Jim. My pleasure. I'm really curious to know where was the first spark that ignited your lifelong pursuit of Shakespeare? Well, the first spark or embers were quickly put out because <laughs> I hated how I was taught Shakespeare in high school. Hated it. We did Romeo and Juliet, and I didn't even get the dirty bits. Shakespeare. Never took a college course in Shakespeare. So you didn't take a college course. Never took Shakespeare. I spent college as a student athlete in the gym and. My love for Shakespeare began and continues through scene production. So when I was in my late teens, my big brother and I were bumming around Europe backpacking, and we ended up in London, and we started to see plays. And it was cheap. It was good evening's entertainment. And for me, it was like a drug, cheaper than other drugs available at the time. <laughs> it had longer-lasting effects. And... Uh, since my late teens, I, I went back every summer for years, quitting some lousy job I held down in New York as a street messenger or selling handicrafts and would go to London and Stratford and the Edinburgh Festival every summer for a month and see 30 plays in 30 days. And after about four or five years, I'd seen hundreds of great Shakespeare productions. And that's where uh, my love of Shakespeare began. Did you ever think about performing it? You hear my accent loud and clear. <laughs> all Brooklyn cast playing in Flatbush. <laughs> now, and I can really even memorize three lines straight. So that's the beauty. I get to work with theater companies at the Royal Shakespeare Company or at the Public Theater, and no one is threatened by the possibility of my acting or directing Shakespeare. So you went from having an intense avocation for Shakespeare to, to becoming a, a, an extremely distinguished Shakespeare scholar. How does that happen? Well, I don't think of myself in those ways. I think of myself as somebody who loves Shakespeare, understands the plays pretty well, and is able to explain what's happening in them without, I guess, just speaking to 150 other Shakespeare experts. My, my audience has always been people who, like me, maybe didn't get it early on, maybe still don't get it. And my job is to research and explain why his plays still matter. And in a nutshell, I mean, it's a huge answer, I know, but why, in your opinion, do they still matter? I can give you an example that will, I hope, explain it rather than sounding fatuous about it. Last month, I was in prison in Brooklyn, Manhattan Federal Prison, and I was there with the Mobile Shakespeare Group from public theater in New York, where a stunning cast of eight terrific equity actors were putting on a production of Hamlet, which was, in effect, the Black Lives Matter Hamlet. 
and watching inmates who had never seen not only Shakespeare, but half of them had never seen a play in their lives, mm. gripped by this. And I'd worked from day one on this production, helped edit the text, helped work with the actors and the terrific director of it. And for me, that is what I should be doing with my time, making Shakespeare meaningful to all kinds of audiences, both those who can pay 200 bucks a ticket in New York or London or Stratford, and those who are behind bars and don't have access to this. And if you do it right, everyone can get it. I couldn't agree more that if you do it right, and I think that's where you come in, and it leads to another question that is something that I've been pondering myself, which is where's the intersection between Shakespeare scholarship and Shakespeare performance? I think the challenge for both sides is asking the right question. And in Shakespeare scholarship at Shakespeare conferences, the conversations often go in a direction that wouldn't immediately appear meaningful to most audiences. And my job is to listen in on those conversations, grasp where the field is going, and then, if you will, translate those issues, if they are worth translating, into the kind of conversations we have nationally and globally. And those conversations are not the same with all kinds of communities. Different questions matter in different ways for audiences. But I can tell you straight out that there are a lot of things we're not good at talking about today in America and elsewhere. Shakespeare is one of those few sites where we can hold those conversations. And that's what I'm interested in, in, in promoting and in doing. It sounds like you, you have a sense of uh, mission and identity as, as a translator, as a facilitator and a communicator. I do, but I'm also from Brooklyn, and things piss me off, like the Hartline <laughs> Shakespeare Festival's plan, and, and now it's more than a plan, to translate Shakespeare's plays, that's their word, into modern American English, because some internet billionaire from the Silicon Valley gave them money to do so. So it's not just promotion, it's it's fighting battles, and my... Uh, the bone that I pick with them is it, it's not simply the internet billionaire's fault that he can't understand Shakespeare's language and therefore wants to change it. The problem is with the directors and with the actors at many, many theaters who don't know what the hell the words mean. And when somebody is reciting a speech to you and are ill-informed about what those words mean, I promise you, you will not understand what they are saying. And the problem is not Shakespeare. The problem is not language that seems 400 years old. The problem is knowing what those words mean. So I both promote and pick fights, I guess, in terms of uh, what I see is, is going to help our culture. A Shakespeare pugilist. I love it. <laughs> so I, I'm interested because we talk, you give me so many thoughts, but we had a guest on and he talked about how actors should aspire to the language of Shakespeare as opposed to try to bring it down to a more Americanized or modern way of speaking. And I thought that that's a really interesting way of thinking about approaching Shakespeare's text. Think, think of it as mountain climbing. Shakespeare puts handholds every step of the way. When you remove those, when you rip those off, it becomes a slippery slope. I know people are confused about the yous and the thous that seem lost 
to us. And I fully admit that no modern audiences are really going to understand the differences that early modern audiences would have grasped. But if you tell an actor, as I did recently in a production of Troilus and Cressida in Central Park at the Delacorte, when he calls another character thou, that that's an F you thou. You're putting him down. You're insulting him. It's like a Hillary versus Trump thou. <laughs> Bring that to the actor and he gets it. He can put that emphasis on the word and you will get that it is tinged with insult. And that's the kind of thing that too many actors don't get taught along the way. That's a great segue to a, a bit of text that you've selected for us to examine today. And it comes from Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5. And this piece of text is, it comes after the famous tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. Can you give us a little context for the bit of text that you've selected? Sure. Most great Shakespeare protagonists in the tragedies get a last great speech. Hamlet's dying speech, Lear's, Othello's. These are memorable speeches. Macbeth doesn't really get one of those. And his last great speech occurs in Act 5, Scene 5, and there's still more of the play to go. But it's the moment where he realizes how wrong he has been and how the witches have destroyed him. And the words he speaks point directly to that. I'll, I'll read the key two and a half lines here. I pull in resolution and begin to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth. Thank you, Jim Shapiro. For our listeners who are following along, those are lines 44, 45, and 46 in our annotated text. The line begins with a very curious phrase, I pull in resolution. How do you make sense of that line? You know, that is a really tough phrase. And part of the problem is not only for us, but for early modern audiences, because this is the earliest citation we have. The Oxford English Dictionary cites it as the earliest time the word pull is used in a sense of rein in or arrest or withdraw. So he's pulling in his resolution. His resolution is arrested. It's halted. He is stuck. And at that point, this forward-looking warrior who's always charging ahead pulls in resolution. He's reining in that resolution. And he begins to doubt the equivocation of the fiend. In your book, 1606, you explain very clearly how the word equivocation resonated in the London of King James. First of all, can you give our listeners a little background into that? Sure. Shakespeare used the word equivocation only once before Macbeth. And that was back in Hamlet at the turn of the century. And when he uses it there, it's Hamlet and Horatio joking with the gravedigger in the famous scene late in the play. And Hamlet uh, just turns to Horatio and says, look, we can't equivocate with this guy. He's just, we have to try to be as explicit as we can because he's turning everything we say in a different way. And, right. and equivocation at that moment in 1600 meant ambiguous. That's what it meant. But by 1606, the meaning of that word had changed radically. 
And I mean radically, because now it meant to say one thing, but to think another, to finish the thought in your mind. And the reason for this change was a failed terrorist attack on England, the gunpowder plot of November 1605, which took place five or six months before Shakespeare finished Macbeth, and it was staged for the first time in London's theater. So Shakespeare is using a word that is, if they had newspapers back then, which they don't, front page news. This was a buzzword. This was a loaded term and was associated with the Jesuits who were, as far as the authorities were concerned, behind the plot to blow up King James, the royal family, and the political and religious leadership in England by setting 36 barrels of gunpowder beneath Parliament and blowing them to kingdom come and installing a puppet queen and restoring England to Catholicism. And this was famously averted the night before the attack, whether the authorities knew about it in advance or not is a separate question. But equivocation became the word of the day. And Shakespeare, writing at this time about, in a play like Macbeth, the killing of a Scottish king, a different one, an historical one, infuses his play both with the word equivocation and with the idea of saying one thing and meaning another. So it's at this moment, at the very end of the play, although the word appears beforehand, this is the first time Macbeth uses it, he realizes that he has been misled by these equivocating witches and their apparitions who told him, don't worry, no man or woman born will kill you. Not to worry, you won't be defeated till Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane. All these are wonderfully equivocal. And at this moment, he's talking not only about how the witches deceived him, but the equivocation of the fiend, because as far as the authorities were concerned in 1606, and as far as Macbeth is concerned in this play, this kind of evil way of saying one thing and meaning another is the work of the devil. It is the most antisocial verbal act imaginable. It calls to mind some of the, the terms that are prevalent in our discourse these days. For, for example, the term flip-flop is about, uh, about the worst thing that you can say about a politician. It has destroyed many a politician. And if you can point out that your opponent has flip-flopped on defending Donald Trump, you're going to have a better shot in the polls in November. That's right. And I think the idea of fact-checking is a result of equivocation, perhaps. Yeah, well, Macbeth has no fact-checker in his uh, (laughs) Trust his own judgment. He trusts his own ears. What's interesting to me in this play is not simply that these mysterious witches or weird sisters, as the play calls them, equivocate. It's what happens in a society in which the level of violence and deceit and treachery permeate everything. So that by the end of the play, it's not just Macbeth and Lady Macbeth who equivocate. The good characters, Lady Macduff and uh, Malcolm themselves are equivocators. So it, it suggests that in such a dark world, and Jacobean England in the aftermath of a failed terrorist attack is recognizing how dark a world it may well be. In such a world, we're all contaminated by equivocation. And that, to me, is what makes this play so disturbing. I I always found the Ross-McDuff moment, the most fascinating moment where Ross is saying they're well, his family's well, and then a page later reveals that they're not too well. (laughs) 
well, well, you know, because they're in heaven, right? I mean, we, you know, we all see through that. We already have seen Macduff's wife and son murdered on stage. So when he's saying, well, the only thought we have is either he's lying or he might put it, well, I'm equivocating. And some people might think, well, it's such terrible news. You want to break it slowly. But once you head down the road of equivocation, there's no turning back. So in the interest of unraveling the complexity of, of these three lines, it's worth maybe examining another word whose, whose meaning has uh, flip-flopped throughout the years. And that's in line 45. The, the term doubt has, has undergone a great many revolutions in terms of it, its sense and meaning. Could you shed some light on that as well? What is the sense in which that word doubt is used? That's a bigger question probably than I can answer without spending about six months. early <laughs> <laughs> English books online and tracking the ways in which that syntax either changed or didn't change over 50 or 100 years. The last thing I ever want to do, which is why my books take me 10 years to, to write and research, the last thing I ever want to do is speak off the cuff. And all I can say in a broader sense is if, as you say, that word is coming under intense pressure in these plays, and it's probably a word that pops up in every play a dozen times or more, then I would venture the safest thing I could say is that this is an age of doubt and an age of increasing skepticism, skepticism and doubt, not only about the promise of rulers, but about religious truth. Since the Reformation, 70 or so years before this play is written, the official state religion has changed a half dozen times, mm. not a half dozen times, but from Catholicism under Henry VIII to Protestantism, and then under his son Edward, more intense Protestantism, and then under Queen Mary, Catholicism, and then under Elizabeth, Protestantism again. So everybody's grandparents are Catholics, but mm -hmm. their parents kind of are shifting. This is an age where a lot of the truths that a century before were taken for granted are now subject to doubt. And that's probably also an effect of an awareness of the globe, an awareness of changing ideas of the universe and the heavens. So in many ways, Shakespeare's world is a world of doubt. The, the letter that Hamlet writes to Ophelia is doubt not the stars and so on. So he puts his finger right on that word that you are picking away at quite rightly. The other thing about the speech, and I, and I think we could explore doubt for quite some time and then get John Patrick Shanley on the line as well. But the other thing about the speech that I find interesting is that you we talked about flip-flopping. Macbeth seems to be going back and forth between pulling in resolution and then fighting to the finish. But he says he pulls in resolution and begin to doubt the equivocation of the fiend. But then three lines later, he's saying arm, arm and out. And he ends with at least we'll die with harness on our back. So it seems that his ground is shifting much like you're describing in Jacobean England. And he's not sure which way to go here. And I think that's a brilliant move on Shakespeare's part. He's denied the kind of clarity that 
most of Shakespeare's great heroes are allowed at the end of the play at the price of suffering is some kind of self-knowledge. The only knowledge that Macbeth now has is he can't trust his knowledge. And at that point, I guess you could say he reverts to what he was at the beginning of the play before he aspired to be king or was tempted to be king. The play is unclear whether the witches put that idea in his mind, his wife does, or it was there all along and activated when he and Banquo ran into the Witch Sisters. He's back to being a soldier. That was his core identity. That was not an identity that depended upon parsing words. He was just whipping somebody from the neck to the nave. And that's how he tries to end. And of course, even then he fails. <laughs> right. Jim Elliott, I have, I have one more question. Do you have any, any other questions that you want to touch on? Yes, millions. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I mean, I, call me back in, in three years on doubt. <laughs> yes, exactly. There you go. <laughs> New book. So I would love to talk more about Oregon. My feeling is let's put Romeo and Juliet as written by Shakespeare and then show Romeo and Juliet as written by a modern thing right back to back and see which one people enjoy more. You know, I'd be so happy to be proven wrong. I've met with the Rush who runs that place, nicest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. And I told him flat out, you've made a deal with the devil. Not a Macbeth-like deal, but <laughs> we're up pretty close. Don't do this. And I know a lot of the people I'm friends with, any number of the people who are taking this money, because people in the theater world can always use money, uh-huh. doing something that's, I'm convinced, not only going to be a failed experiment, but a dangerous one because they're now selling this to other Shakespeare festivals around the country. And you tell me, if you were an internet billionaire behind this, wouldn't you put together an edition and try to market it to the schools? Of course. I have a dumbed-down Shakespeare that's coming out of what was, and still is in many respects, one of the great Shakespeare theaters in this country. Absolutely. So I'm not after them. I'm after them to stop and think and test and reflect whether this serves Shakespeare and this serves their audiences. Very well well answered. Thank you. There were times when I was reading Contested Will, and I almost stood up in my chair and cheered for you because of the way you defended him. But I don't want to open that nut hole. But I just wanted to say thank you for writing that book. All I can say without going further into it is, if the last six months have taught us all anything, it's about the danger of conspiracy thinking in a democracy. The authorship controversy, everyone would have to agree, is about a conspiracy. Those who argue that somebody other than Shakespeare wrote it identify the conspirators in broad terms and how this conspiracy happened. I am frightened by conspiracy thinking because it endangers, much like equivocation in its own way, the social fabric, how we agree. Whether it's the Shakespeare authorship controversy, or whether Obama was an American, or whether an election is rigged, it depends upon notions of evidence that don't work, that aren't, if you will, things we can, in a civilized society, agree on. And I'm not really interested in the Shakespeare authorship controversy. I'm interested in why people come to think as they do. And that's really what that book is about. So my final question for you, James Shapiro, is if you have a vision 
an optimistic vision for the for the future of Shakespeare in America. What is the part that you envision educators and practitioners playing in that? Well, that's a really, really good question. My answer to that is this experiment called America, which is a quarter century old at this point, is an ongoing and imperfect experiment. Issues of immigration, issues of inequality, issues of race, issues of gender still haunt and divide us. And if you look at what great Americans have written about Shakespeare over the past couple of centuries, great American writers, poets and playwrights, essayists and presidents, they turn again and again to these questions. And whether it's Jane Addams writing about industrial barons, rich people exploiting the young through King Lear, or Mary McCarthy talking about Macbeth and the generals who would send us into war, or thinking of people like President Adams, our sixth president, who writes a withering attack on Desdemona for marrying a black man. And this one of the great abolitionists of his day. So my, my point is that we can look to Shakespeare both to wrestle with and identify the things that divide us and try to work through them. And we can turn to Shakespeare in productions today to try to identify those things that we aspire to and that defy us and endanger us as a culture. And I'm not interested in a kind of, how should I put it, doublet and hose, pure early modern Shakespeare. I'm interested in the words Shakespeare used because they cut to the heart of our own cultural challenges and divides today. And that's what excites me. That's what should challenge and excite any teacher hopefully better than the ones that I had in the evening. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I had a similar experience with my first Shakespeare teacher as well. I feel bad for you, but I'm glad we're now at the point where we're both interested enough in Shakespeare that we can have this conversation. And there will be thousands more who uh, will overcome. Exactly. James Shapiro, thank you so much for spending time with us today and for being our guest. It's a pleasure. Great questions, great conversation. Thanks, Jim. My name is Garrett Vanderveer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.